Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to uh, make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to uh, focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us tonight, and ready to concentrate as we take another flyover, one last final flyover Hebrews tonight as we cover the whole whole book one last time. Uh, we'll, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are very grateful that we have this opportunity to come together this evening in order to focus on your word and to uh, study your word, to reflect again upon the tremendous uh, truths that we have studied in the book of Hebrews and the things that we have learned in Hebrews in relationship to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in relationship to his uh, work on the cross and how that fits within the overall framework of biblical revelation from Genesis, especially uh, Exodus and Leviticus, and how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices, and how uh, his death on the cross is the uh, perfect and complete sacrifice that pays the penalty for sin, and what the implications of that are in terms of our own Christian life and in terms of our future destiny to rule and reign with him. Father, we pray that as we study your word to, uh, tonight that we can focus, concentrate, put aside the uh, things that easily distract us, and that we'll be able to uh, pay attention and think through the things and remember the things that we have learned in this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are going to do another uh, final review tonight going through Hebrews. One last time, uh, these lessons I uh, try to do periodically when you have a series that goes for some 219 hours or uh, lasts actually about five years, which is about how long we've been in this study. I think I couldn't remember if I started this when I, when I first started at the church or if I had already started it in Connecticut. A little while after, got little while after I got here. Okay. Okay. Um, that's what I thought. So we have been in this for a while, at least five years. And so there are many things that we've studied as we've gone through Hebrews. It's been a great study. It's been a tremendous 
uh, time to learn many things. I know I've learned a lot. I'm sure you have as well. And there are things, especially in the middle part of Hebrews, in chapter uh, 7, 8, especially uh, 9, as we got into a lot of the sacrifices and going back and doing a lot of detailed study in the Old Testament on the temple, the tabernacle, all of the uh, different sacrifices and the different furniture in the temple and the tabernacle, putting all of that together and then uh, so that we could have a better understanding of what the writer of Hebrews was saying. We spent almost a year just going through a couple of those chapters because we did so much work back in the Old Testament, and that was uh, very, uh, very helpful. But sometimes as we drill down in a lot of those uh, kinds of details, we lose the forest for the trees. We forget that uh, when this was first written to the original audience, that it was read to them in a single sitting. And when it was read to them because of the relationship that the writer, the author had with his audience because of shared experiences, because of their shared backgrounds, because the audience uh, was extremely familiar with what he was talking about. They were uh, much more familiar with all of the allusions to the Old Testament and references to the sacrificial system than we are. It made a tremendous amount of sense to them, and they could catch the uh, major points and the major emphases a lot more than we do. Furthermore, in light of the, the way the book of Hebrews fits within the whole canon of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, when we study Hebrews not only in terms of itself, but in light of other revelation that's given in the New Testament, plus the Old Testament revelation given through the uh, sacrificial system, uh, the priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, and all those different studies, then as we dig down into uh, what the writer said, we are able to uh, come to an understanding of nuances and details and implications that perhaps the original writer and the original audience were not fully aware. It is not that it is contradictory or different. It is that uh, they did not have all of the all of the tools and all of the history of uh, of doctrine that we have which comes back to help inform our understanding of Hebrews. Now that's a that's an odd concept for a lot of people. Uh, best illustration I have of that is to to state that most of us have a have a better have a more precise understanding of the doctrine of the trinity that you have one god one in essence one uh but this one god is a perfect unity in a trinity and there are three distinct persons within that godhead and this is expressed through that word that i just used trinity and that we understand that better than any of the writers of scripture because they did not have that word, Trinity. And so we have vocabulary today that has been refined and honed down through the centuries that enable us to talk and communicate and to understand some of these uh, more abstract concepts that are in the, in the scriptures that are, were not available in the first century. So it is not that we believe something different it is that we have a more precise, a more focused understanding of many of these things 
than the writer of Scripture did, than the Apostle Paul or the writer of Hebrews or the Apostle John. And this is how God constructed his word so that it wouldn't be of the nature of perhaps a book that we study, uh, an everyday book that we might study in uh, philosophy or history or some other discipline where we read it once, maybe twice, maybe three times, and and probe the, the depths of the uh, writer's thinking. Uh, the Bible is such that the more you read it, the more you understand it, the more you learn, the m- deeper you go into the the teaching, the doctrines, and all of the uh, different uh, complexities that are there. And every time you go, you see new things, and the Lord teaches you new, th- new things, and you come to a deeper and richer appreciation of the Lord's plan and purposes in history and the Lord's plan and purposes in our own lives. And that is especially something that we find true in a book like Hebrews. So it's important to not only look at all of the details, but also to take time to sort of stand up and get a a little further above the uh, teaching that's there to get the overall, the overall thrust. We did this at the beginning. And now we, and we've done it several times as we've gone through the text, and now we're doing it again at the end. So just to review and remind ourselves a little bit about this particular uh, book, one of the interesting things about this book is that it presents a puzzle. It presents a puzzle in a number of different ways. And for people who really like mysteries and like puzzles and like to do lots of investigation, there's a lot to... uh, uh, a lot to give them uh, work in the study of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, we don't know who he wrote it to. We don't know where he was when he wrote it. We don't know where they were when he wrote it to them. Uh, we're not precisely sure uh, why he wrote it in terms of the immediate occasion uh, for this writing. There's even been some debate over just exactly what type of, of literature it is. Now, just because there are debates over issues, especially since we're right in the middle of the political season and everybody's all uh, paying attention to uh, the different candidates running for offices and you hear one candidate make a case for one thing and another candidate make uh, what may sound to be an equally uh, valid case for something different, what's important is to do a lot of investigation and find out who's uh, actually shading things in one direction or another direction. And so just because people make really strong cases for different positions doesn't mean that they're uh, even on the even close to the bullseye when it comes to understanding the truth. And there are a lot of people who... Are, have been way off course and make, in making certain assertions about different things in the Bible, and all they've done is, is really demonstrate uh, their lack of knowledge. And such was the case, I think, with the King James Version, as I pointed out in terms of authorship, that if you have a King James translation, at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, it says the book of Hebrews uh, according to the Apostle Paul. So the King James Version made a very uh, dogmatic assertion that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Uh, the, the, the style of the writing in the Greek is very different from Paul's. There are the, the vocabulary is very different. There's a number of other facets that are also different. Uh, not that a writer can't, an individual can't write a little differently. Uh, at times, depending on the subject matter, he'll, of course, if the subject matter changes, he'll use different vocabulary. 
But uh, especially today with the use of computers and things of that nature, we can do some pretty remarkable things in terms of analyzing um, uh, pieces of literature to see how they relate to uh, other pieces of literature written by the same person. And you can really track out a lot of different patterns. So it's pretty well accepted that that, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There are a number of different theories. Some people think possibly it was uh, Luke. Other people think it might have been um, it might have been Apollos, who was also very much associated with Paul. There are many concepts within Hebrews that are close to Pauline that are clearly influenced by Paul's thinking, and so it is generally thought that the person who wrote it, especially at the end, he says he's awaiting uh, awaiting uh, Timothy, and so that he was one of those who was closely associated. Uh, with the Apostle Paul, but we don't know exactly who it was. There have even been some who've suggested it was uh, possibly uh, written originally in uh, Aramaic and then translated into Greek. There are some uh, very creative theories out there, and there's always people who think that they have finally solved the mystery, and then it's important to send them to a doctor so then they can get on their medication. Um, and there's always a seminary student every now and then who's overstressed from classes, who studying studying for his third all-nighter, and about 3 o'clock in the morning decides he knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, we don't know. There are certain clues, though, about to the group that he's writing to. They're clearly a group of people who have a uh, intimate understanding of the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. They're clearly a group of people who have a Jewish background because of those references. They're clearly a group of people who have a uh, probably a second generation of Christians, a group that has gone back to uh, the early days of, of, uh, of the church, and they are struggling with whether or not they are going to continue. They are uh, weary from persecution. They're weary from facing uh, adversity. They're not different from a lot of uh, Christians that uh, that I know and talk to on a day-by-day basis. They're just facing all of the different vicissitudes of life, the challenges, struggles with everything from finances to health to job, career, family, parents, children, grandchildren, dogs, cats, whatever. Everybody's facing their uh, own challenges. And sometimes we're just weary of the struggle and weary of the battle. And it's uh, we, we say we just want to sort of quit going a hole somewhere and get away from it. And they weren't any different from that. And so the basic theme of the book of Hebrews is to challenge uh, these believers with the importance of sticking it out, running the race to the finish line, and understanding that the race is merely a qualification for a future position, uh, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns uh, when he returns at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom. We are going through uh, uh, a boot camp so to speak. We're going through something like, uh, uh, you use a military analogy, we're going through something like uh, like boot camp or ranger school, and how we finish the training will have a lot to do with what kinds of responsibilities and roles we have in the future kingdom as members of the body of Christ who will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial, uh, in the millennial kingdom. 
And so it's important to keep our eye on the end goal again and again and again. I've emphasized that basic theme that we need to live today in light of eternity and not get distracted by all of the details and pressures and disappointments and uh, surprises that we face on a day-to-day basis, but to keep our eye on the end game that God is in control. There are no surprises in the plan of God. There's the, the plan of God doesn't get upset. God isn't uh, shocked by things that happened, and uh, he is in the process of, of, uh, su- uh, of supervising our lives and the details of our lives to bring us to a point of spiritual maturity, and that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that this was a pattern that was seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he who was perfect without a sin nature needed to be matured, needed to be trained and brought to maturity in his humanity uh, by going through various kinds of adversities, various kinds of situations so that he would learn in his humanity how to uh, trust God, claim promises, how to utilize what we usually refer to as the problem-solving devices, how to grow in terms of those spiritual skills of grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, um, uh, living today in light of eternity, our personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God and personal love for all mankind, um, all of these kinds of things. The Lord Jesus Christ had to grow in those things. It's not that he didn't have a sin nature, so he didn't sin. He was he was without sin, but he still had to grow and learn those things in his humanity. He didn't just know them intuitively uh, because of his the fact that he was also God. And we, we talked some about the understanding uh, Jesus Christ in terms of the uh, hypostatic union, that Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was eternal God. And this is emphasized at the very outset of the introduction of Hebrews. The first uh, four uh, verses in Hebrews chapter 1 give us that orientation and give us, through the use of certain phrases and certain uh, certain terms, sort of a, um, a, a hint or foreshadowing of things to come. At the very beginning, we have this emphasis on God and divine revelation, which is very important throughout the book of Hebrews. Again and again and again, we have references to God speaking, God's promises, uh, living on the basis of God's promises, trusting those promises. Hebrews chapter 11, we went through uh, all of those different heroes, all of those different faith heroes from the Old Testament, from, um, you know, from Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham to Moses. Uh, all, all, all through the Old Testament, you see these individuals who believed the promise of God. Now, a promise is something that God revealed, something that God spoke. And so uh, one of these themes that you can trace through Hebrews is the fact that God spoke again and again and again, and his speaking always entailed a certain response from those to whom he spoke. When he spoke, there was that expectation of of an obedient response. And when there was a disobedient response, there was... There were consequences. And so the writer introduces this at the very beginning by saying, God, who at various times and in various ways, emphasizing the different modes and uh, ways and means in which God revealed himself in the Old Testament, 
God spoke in time past to the fathers uh, by the prophets, the fathers being those who were in the Old Testament, by means of the prophets. And he, but God in these last days has spoken to us by means of his Son. So there is a greater revelation that came by the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the um, is eternal God who became flesh. He's the incarnation of God in the flesh, as as the Apostle John said in the first chapter of John, um, that uh, that we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten Son of God, and so the, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so. There was this revelation of deity of God that was seen in Jesus Christ so that uh, these aspects of God's uh, personhood, his attributes, was more real, more observable, more immediate than it ever had been before. So there is a a higher level of revelation uh, given through his son. And he goes on to indicate that this son is... Uh, the one whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Jesus Christ here is seen as the immediate one, uh, the immediate creator, whereas God the Father is viewed as the planner, the architect. It is God the Son who is the one who is the uh, immediate one. He's more of the, uh, he's the on-site uh, uh, building uh, contractor. And it is God the Holy Spirit also who is involved, and we see that in other passages. But we also see in verse 3 an emphasis on the uh, eternality or the, or the attributes of, God, uh, of Jesus Christ as fully God, being the brightness of his glory or the outworking, uh, the out ex- outward expression of the glory of God and the express image, that's that word character, character uh, he, that he, of his person, so he is a perfect represent, representative, uh, having all of the attributes of God. You can't escape the claim in this verse that Jesus Christ had all of the attributes of deity; that he is fully God. And not only, but he is not only fully God; he is also fully human. And in his humanity, he did things that were separate and distinct from his deity. In his humanity, he had by himself, the King James, the New King James uses the word, he purged himself, uh, he purged our sins, rather, uh, which is the um, uh, Greek word katharismos, which means he cleansed, he provided cleansing for sin, which is the foundation for uh, forgiveness of sins, that he paid the penalty for all sin on the cross, when he had by himself, that means apart from aid from the other members of the Godhead, uh, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. And I emphasize when we went through this that if he became something higher than the angels, that can't be talking about his deity because in his deity he was already and always had been higher than the angels because he was not created He's eternal. The angels were created, so in his deity he was always superior to the angels. But in his humanity, as a creature, he had to go through a training process that culminated in his uh, service to God, 
uh, at the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins, and as a result of that, he then becomes the heir, the designated heir of God, heir of all things, and he is elevated by means of his humanity to his position at the right hand of God the Father. Now, the rest of the chapter emphasizes uh, the, the distinction between Jesus as the eternal Son of God, as being higher than the angels, and the angels who are lower than uh, Jesus Christ because uh, they are creatures and he is not. So in this section, we learn a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's The Lord Jesus Christ is really the focal point of the book of Hebrews in understanding uh, it's fully full, understanding his full significance. He's the one who provides first and foremost the uh, uh, purification or cleansing for our sin in the uh, third verse of the first chapter. As a result, he's elevated to a position at the right hand of God the Father. He's elevated over the angels, which puts man, who's according to the Psalms, is first created lower than the angels, and then elevated. Uh, above the angels because he fulfills the purpose of mankind as being created in the image of God in terms of his position over the creation. Um, he's the one, therefore, because of his uh, promise of inheritance in verse 8, he's the one who will receive the righteous kingdom, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, a righteous kingdom. But he doesn't have that kingdom yet. He is to await it. Uh, because the, God says, as we see in verse 13, quoting Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus Christ, as the Son of, Son of Man, is still seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting this uh, distribution of his inheritance and the kingdom. So what we see as we go through Hebrews in terms of the structure, is that there are uh, five different sections, and each section has two components. There is a doctrinal exposition, or there is a teaching section that uh, develops a a certain key uh, element or key aspect uh, related to the uh, God's plan and God's work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a practical exhortation, which is another word for a challenge or application, a practical exhortation and a warning. Uh, sometimes the two go hand in hand. Sometimes the warning is just a few verses as part of the lord, larger uh, exhortation. So the first four verses give us the introduction and, and prelude to the book, and then the first uh, uh, teaching section the first section teaches on the superiority of Jesus as the Son over the angels and the implications for that. And the implication then is brought out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where we read, Therefore, we must give the, most, the, give the more earnest heed or give the most earnest attention to the things we have heard, that therefore is a conclusion, because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity, because he became a human being and fulfilled all of God's plans and purposes in his person for uh, God's plan for the human race, because he cleansed us, purged all sin, he has now, after the resurrection, been elevated 
to a position at the right hand of the Father from whence he will come to take his kingdom and receive the inheritance, and we're part of it. Therefore, we must not treat this lightly. We must take this into account, and we must pay uh, pay detailed attention to these things that we have heard. Notice the emphasis here on hearing something. It is the word that God has now spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, verse 2. Uh, verse 2 goes on to say here, chapter 2, verse 2, for the word spoken through the angels. See, again, we're talking about that revelation of God. This is really goes back to the Old Testament revelation because the angels were involved. We learned from Galatians that the angels were involved in mediating that revelation from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, also, there are Old Testament passages that indicate that as well, that this word, if the word is spoken through angels proves steadfast, so here he's using an Old Testament illustration, if this com- these commandments from God in the Old Testament were such that when they were disobeyed, it resulted in certain uh, negative consequences and disobedience received its just reward, that is uh, indicating a punishment, the question is how shall we who have a greater revelation... How shall we escape, that is, judgment in terms of divine discipline, if we neglect so great a salvation? And this term here, this verse is often uh, taken out of context and often quoted uh, in a um, uh, to refer to justification. But the word salvation here is a pregnant use of this word salvation. It refers to the entire plan of deliverance that God has for all of humanity and all of the human race, leading to its ultimate deliverance that, and its culmination in the uh, future uh, millennial or messianic kingdom. So he's saying, how shall we escape, we as believers today, escape discipline from God if we neglect this great salvation, this great plan, which at first began to be spoken of by the Lord and then was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness. And again, we have the principle that whenever God reveals anything, if it's in private, he always validates it and documents it in public. There's always objective, verifiable evidence that this is God's word. That's why if you go back into the Old Testament and look at the tests of a prophet in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, God recognized that there were always going to be people who come along and say, well, God told me this. Joseph Smith claimed to have direct revelation from God. A Muhammad claimed to have direct revelation from God. Uh, the Buddha claimed to have insights into uh, divine things. There's always people who come along and say, uh, thus says the Lord, or God told me this. There has to be a way to evaluate it because they can't all be saying the same thing because they're, they're contradictory. Uh, they contradict one another. And so uh, either they're all lying or, uh, or, or if they're all telling the truth and God's really confused and has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, so the only alternative is that there has to be a way of validating and verifying who is speaking the truth. And so God lays out those principles of validation and verification in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. God always had confirmatory evidence whenever he spoke through miracles, signs, and wonders, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is indicated here. Then we go into the second section. 
And the second section is a little bit longer. It goes from chapter 2, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 13. And we went through the uh, doctrinal part, the teaching part, the explanation of key principles from chapter uh, 2, verse 5 through chapter 3, verse 6. And then there's a longer uh, exhortation section from chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. Now, the main principle that we see in this second section is the emphasis on Jesus Christ in his humanity is trained by God through the things that he suffers, the, the adversity he faces, the difficulties he had to go through as a human being in the process of growing up. Luke says in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, that, that Jesus, um, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. And that passage is talking about Jesus in terms of his childhood growth. So Jesus grew in, uh, in wisdom and in stature. Stature is the physical part. Wisdom is his mental, his intellectual, spiritual growth. And in favor with God and man, that is in terms of his relationship with God on the one hand and other human beings on the other hand. We don't normally think of that, that in his humanity, Jesus had to learn the Torah. Jesus had to learn the Old Testament. He did not know truth intuitively. He did in his deity, but in the uh, union of his humanity and deity, Jesus is not running over here to his deity and downloading data whenever he needs an answer to the question. That would be like the original Internet. Okay, I've got a problem here. I'm going to run over here and I'm going to uh, g use my Internet Explorer to go access information to help me solve my problems in my humanity. That would not be, if that were true, then we, the scriptures could not come to us and say that Jesus is a pattern for our life because we can't do that. See, we, we can't access divine attributes to solve our problems. And the whole point is that Jesus faced life just as we face life. The difference is he did not have a sin nature. He didn't have a propensity to sin. He did not have an inherited sin nature from Adam. He didn't have the imputation of Adam's original sin. And he never committed any personal sin. So he is the exact mirror, as it were, of Adam in his original creation being absolutely perfect and without sin. And what Jesus demonstrates is that by being completely and totally dependent upon God in terms in utilizing the identical resources that we have, he, he does not sin and he grows to maturity and he fulfills God's plan for his life and then he's qualified to go to the cross and he goes to the cross and dies on the cross for our sins. Key verse here is verse 10. Chapter 2, for it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is talking about the future long-term end result plan of God, in order to bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, mature or complete, there's a word teleos there, through sufferings. So Jesus goes through the same test patterns that we do, the same adversity tests, teaching him to trust God, teaching him to claim promises, teaching him all of those things, but he never fails. The difference is that we fail far too 
uh, often fail all the time initially, and it takes us a long time to finally get the point and to get our focus right. And the end result is that he grew to maturity and he fulfills God's plan in a perfect way. So as a result of that, he is um, qualified to be our high priest, skipping down to verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. In order to fulfill it, he had to be just like us. That's the point. He had to face those challenges, those temptations and tests, just like we do without any additional resources. So he's not over here trying to access his deity to help him out with the problem. What he's doing is he's taking the word of God that he has with the spirit of God, and he's applying it to the situation. Uh, so he's had to be made just like us that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He, in making propitiation for us, that is to satisfy the righteous demands of God, the holy demands of God, uh, he had to be qualified. And, and, and to make propitiation, he dies as our substitute. Well, to die as our substitute, he has to be like us. A dog couldn't die for a man. A lamb couldn't die for a man. A bull in the Old Testament. That's where the rite of Hebrews is going to go by the time we get into chapter 7, 8, 9, that these animal sacrifices couldn't do the trick. They were important because they depicted the, the spiritual issues related to sin and the payment of sin and the problem of, of death as a penalty for sin. But an animal can't die for a human being. Only someone who is a human being can pay the penalty as a substitute for another human being. And so the high priest had to be made just like us. And then we read in verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, so his temptation, his testing was real as we studied, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then there's a conclusion in verses 1 through 6. And then in verse 7, we get into the challenge and the warning. And the challenge goes back to Old Testament incidences in the wilderness when the Israelites coming out of Egypt disobeyed God, when they grumbled and they complained in the wilderness, when they complained that uh, there wasn't any rain and there wasn't any food. And uh, God says in the day of trial in the wilderness in verse 8, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Again and again and again, they saw these great miracles of God bringing water out of the rock, bringing uh, uh, manna every morning, every evening, and then providing uh, and the sustenance for their clothes. Their clothes never wore out. That would be really frustrating for most of the ladies that were out there in the wilderness because they didn't get to go to DSW and shop for shoes every other week. Because their shoes never wore out, and their clothes never wore out. Nothing ever wore out. Everything was maintained by God. This was obviously, they, they lived in the, in the center of the miraculous for 40 years, and yet they rejected God. And that's a great evidence for us because it reminds us that it's ultimately not about evidence. It's ultimately not about that empirical, uh, quantifiable evidence. That's important. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but that's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is a matter of an individual's volition. Do they want to know God or not? Do they want to trust God or not? 
And so they failed to trust God, and so they didn't enter into the rest, which was the promised land. And God punished them by saying that you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but you're only going to come to the uh, those who survive for the end. They're just going to get to the border of the promised land, but they're never going to get in. And that included Moses. And Moses never got in. Uh, Moses, because of his disobedience, uh, had to die, and he never entered into the land. The only two that entered into the land from the wilderness uh, generation, from the Exodus generation, were Caleb and Joshua because of their obedience. So the warning here is don't be like them. Don't sacrifice your future uh, based on uh, present disobedience. And that is uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. So, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Verse 1 goes right into the next thought. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And so there's the warning here in terms of our spiritual life, uh, never to give up, never to forget there's a future destiny. There always remains a rest for the people of God. This is talking about the entering into the millennial uh, kingdom. That's in verse 9. And so then we're commanded in verse 11, the emphasis is, therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That is the example of disobedience from the Exodus generation. And then we're told that we, we can handle this because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Uh, let us therefore, this is in verse 14, let us therefore hold fast our confession. Don't give up. Uh, don't fall out and uh, fall by the wayside. Uh, because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands our weaknesses. He's gone through the test. That doesn't mean he's gone through every single exact, precise circumstance, but he's gone through the basic issues. Uh, the general categories of testing uh, were all there, and he, he passed. And because of that, uh, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, we have trouble with that, as I pointed out, because we think of temptation as that inner subjective attraction to doing what we shouldn't do. Uh, But uh, testing is also objective. Uh, A a trap can be baited, and we're not attracted to the bait. Uh, I often use the example of being on a diet. We've all had that common experience, and there are things that um, we know we shouldn't eat, we're not supposed to eat, and when we see the ice cream or the cake or whatever the ladies have fixed and put out in the kitchen after class, and we see that and we're drawn to it. But if we are have eaten well and we're not hungry and we've been doing well in our progress, then it really doesn't even attract us. And that's the difference uh, that, that we see is that uh, the difference between a subjective inner attraction to do something we know we shouldn't versus that external, uh, just the external baiting of the trap. So Jesus was tested objectively in all points as we are, but there's never that internal correspondence to it because that's a result of our own, our own sin nature. So he's objectively tested in all points as we are yet without sin. But that gives us a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and we can go to in terms of, of the daily needs that we have in the spiritual life. 
Now this takes us into the next chapter. Uh, uh, actually, chapter 14 started the next section, uh, section 3 going into the next section, which develops uh, the whole concept of his priesthood in chapter 4 and 5, develops the concept of his priesthood, and uh, it, it takes us to the point of uh, quoting again Psalm 110, verse 4, that he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in those uh, first uh, 10 verses, ending with that quote from Psalm 110.4, it sets us up for the next section that comes, um, that comes after 6.9. Uh, there's a lengthy practical uh, challenge here uh, that starts in uh, 5.12, or actually 5.11, uh, that we need to uh, pay attention not become spiritually dull, but pay attention and be consistent in our daily application. Once again, it talks about the first principles of the oracles of God in chapter 12, I mean in verse 12. Uh, we've come, uh, the need to pay attention to what God has revealed to us. Uh, this is again, uh, it, it, uh, connected down to, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, the elementary principles of Christ. Um, and moving on in terms of, of uh, doctrine and understanding what God has revealed to us. And then this takes us down to um, still communicating that same uh, theme of God's revelation to us with a uh, re- implied requirement that we are to be obedient. The warning passage in chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 8, is the one that many people go to and think that it's talking about either uh, people who lost their salvation uh, or it's talking about people who um, uh, can't be saved, but it's uh, actually talking about believers who turn their back on the grace of God. They don't lose their salvation, but they do put in jeopardy their future rewards and uh, ruling responsibilities uh, in the kingdom. Now, then, starting in uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through the end of 10, this is the core section of the, of, the, uh, of the book, which, as I pointed out in the introduction, it's not really an epistle. It's more of a written sermon. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't bear all the marks of an epistle like Romans or, or James. Or excuse me, James is a bad example. James is more of a written sermon also, like Romans or 1 Corinthians or Galatians. It's more like 1 John or James. Uh, it seems to bear the marks of having been more of a sermon that is then written out and put into a form that is something uh, that is similar to, a, uh, to a, uh, an epistle. So in the next section, the emphasis goes, goes to this, the high priestly ministry of Christ and its implication. And it's in this section where we have an emphasis in chapter 7 on this high priestly ministry that Jesus has. He's not a high priest like, uh, like Aaron, because Aaron's high priestly ministry, Aaron the uh, older brother of Moses, was a high priest because he's in the tribe of Levi. And in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood was based on physical qualifications. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You couldn't have certain deformities or physical problems. Uh, there was not a spiritual qualification, just physical uh, qualifications. But 
that qualification is one that was limited. Those priests could not pay, pay their own sin penalty. They had to also have their sins uh, propitiated or atoned for uh, through sacrifices. Uh, those priests died. They did not have an eternal priesthood. Uh, those priests were a, that was a limited priesthood, and it could only apply to Israel. But the Melchizedekian priesthood is a distinct priesthood. It was a priesthood that preceded uh, the call of Abraham uh, were introduced to Melchizedek in, in, uh, uh, the, in Genesis chapter 14 after, uh, after Abraham defeated the uh, coalition of the five kings that had invaded into uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and into the land of, of Canaan and had captured a number of people, terrorized a lot of people and uh, stolen and, lot, and taken a lot of plunder. Then uh, Abraham got his servants together, and they uh, defeated this this army and rescued those who had been uh, been captured. And on his return home, he had gone to Jerusalem and had paid uh, tithes to Melchizedek, who was the priest king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. So he it's a, it predates uh, the the founding of the Jewish race through Abraham. And so it is, uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood is a universal priesthood that applies to all mankind, and it is that royal priesthood of Melchizedek that is the pattern for the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the argument here, and he goes on, and starting in verse uh, 20 of chapter 7, to emphasize that this priesthood is uh, founded upon an oath or a covenant. It is a legally binding uh, contract. And Jesus' priesthood is based on a covenant that is superior to the covenant of Moses. It's based on the, uh, on the new covenant. This leads us into chapter 8 with an emphasis on the fact that he is the high, we have a high, such a high priest as Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, the earthly priests uh, of the tribe of Levi uh, were, were temporary. They served a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Verse 5. But Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant that has better promises. Once again, this whole idea of covenant promises is a part of the revelation of God, and we are uh, expected to obey this revelation of God. This new covenant is specifically identified as the new covenant that God promised that he would make between the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And this is quoted from Jeremiah chapter 31. 31 to 34, in the next section of chapter 8, from 8, 7 down through 8, 8, 13. And then it goes on to, to show the superiority of Christ's sacrifice over the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That was all of the detail in chapter 9. The basic point there was that the high priest in the Old Testament was also a sinner. He, the first thing he had to do on the Day of Atonement was to take a sacrifice into the into the a temple for himself and his family. And then he would take another sacrifice for the nation. But Jesus does not need to die for himself because he is uh, without sin. And he is the high priest of a superior covenant and that the blood, as it states in verses 13 and 14, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, all of which is related to the uh, purification rituals, 
of the uh, Mosaic law. This was this really didn't do anything to solve the sin problem, but it pictured something that had to happen. There had to be a sacrifice that was efficacious and universal that could solve the problem of this of the sin problem and could uh, pay the penalty. And it had to be done through this sacrifice. So Jesus Christ is the one who did this, verse 27 and 28. It's appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. But the point is that he is the one who provided that sacrifice. Chapter 10 continues that theme, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin but that it is Jesus Christ who fulfills that uh, that uh, sacrifice by being a perfect sacrifice. Uh, verse 10 states, By that will, that is the will of God, uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the next section from verses 11 to 13 emphasizes again that he is the one who made this perfect sacrifice And as a result of that, he is accepted by God and elevated to the right hand of God. This leads to the, takes us down to the practical exhortation in 10, 19 to 39, in which there's a a significant warning in verses 26 uh, through 39. The point of the of the exhortation of the challenge is to hold fast to the confession, not to give up, not to uh, become weary, not to become tired, not to become overwhelmed because there is an eventual judgment, there's eventual accountability, and this is part of the warning. Don't, uh, uh, don't treat this lightly because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a reference to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, as well as Hebrews uh, 12, 28. So this is the warning that we need to have endurance. Uh, verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The promise is the word of God, the revelation of God to us. And so now he's going to illustrate that by going to the lives of these Old Testament saints who were given a promise and who believed God, believed the promise, lived their life on the basis of the reality of that promise, even though they never saw the promise fulfilled in their whole life. And so he starts with uh, giving a uh, description of faith in verse 1, that faith is external evidence of an internal reality. It's the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. A person's trust in God is sort of an external evidence of an internal reality of his hope, that is his future expectation and confidence. Uh, by faith, that is in trusting God, we understand that the world's, first of all, the world's were framed by the word of God. Once again, that takes us back to the very beginning that God has spoken to us through his son. His speaking uh, implies accountability. And so then he gives illustrations, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. All of these uh, overcame and were uh, uh, and illustrated this principle because at some point, in some, whether it's a big way like Abraham or a small way like some of the judges, Gideon, uh, Jephthah, Samson are mentioned, um, 
they at some point they believed God for a promise. And that's the thing that he's illustrating. It comes right out of uh, verse 36. You have no need endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And so that's what these all did. They understood the promise. They obeyed God in either a small way or a large way, and they received the promise. And so now these Old Testament uh, believers stand, as it were, Verse uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through th- one and 2, as a crowd in a stands, as witnesses that have gone before us. And just as they ran their race, and Jesus ran his race with endurance, and he didn't give up, he didn't uh, uh, fade out in the stretch, but he reached the goal and served God, we too are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But life is like a contest. It's like a race. It's like an athletic event. We have to be trained. We have to be disciplined. We have to keep our focus on the end game, the end result, the end zone, and and reaching that final goal, that final prize. And so that means that the coach is going to train us, and the coach being God is going to take us through both positive discipline in terms of teaching us to get rid of the things that are non-essential, unessential in life, the things that distract us, and also in terms of negative discipline in terms of, of chastening. And there's a quote there from uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verses, uh, 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 let me see, that's a quote from, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, rather, 11 and 12, quoting the fact that uh, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So there's training. Therefore, because of this and because of the temptation to not make it to the, uh, to the end, we are to be strengthened. And so there's the challenges we studied recently in chapter 12, 12 through 17, that we are to strengthen the hands that hang down, the feeble knees. In other words, when we want to get off course, when we want to give up, uh, we need to be strengthened. And that means uh, we need to pursue peace with all uh, men and not to become uh, distracted by bitterness or mental attitude sins or uh, losing sight of the end game of our own inheritance. And the negative example of Esau is given. And then there's a comparison, once again made to Mount Sinai, the contrast of law and grace, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, in verses 18 to 24. And the focus takes us right back to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, taking us back to chapter the first part of chapter 11. And then we have our uh, final warning section in verses 25 through 28, that since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us hold on to grace, not give up on grace, and continue to serve God. And this serving of God then is spelled out in terms of this final series of exhortations or challenges in chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 17, all of which... Uh, emphasize different aspects of what it means to love one another. The first verse, let brotherly love continue. And then uh, at the end, we are told uh, just closing comments from the author to pray for them uh, and to then a final benediction, uh, closing statement. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete 
Just as Jesus was made complete through the things he suffered, it is God who can make us complete in every good work to do his will through Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews then is a is really not an epistle like these others that I've said, but it is a message, as the writer says in verse 22, of exhortation. It is a challenge to us not to give up, to stay the course, and to keep our eye on the end game. And that is the message of Hebrews. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time we've had to study Hebrews, to be reminded of all of the great and wonderful things the Lord Jesus Christ has provided for us, that he is the author and completer of our faith, and we are to keep our focus upon him, and that uh, he is the pattern, he is the model, he is the uh, one who has uh, uh, pioneered our spiritual life. And so as he focused on uh, living living by the Spirit of God and, and applying the Word of God, so we too are to do the same thing. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve to uh, be consistent, to apply your word, and to uh, uh, stay the course. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.